This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. So we face an immediate and evolving threat from adversaries who are actively developing and testing hypersonic missile systems. You know, and these missile systems, they really alter the war fighting on a strategic and tactical level. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. The Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. Hypersonics is experiencing something of a renaissance. The technology that allows flight at five times the speed of sound has been around since the beginning of the Cold War. Now that U.S. adversaries are fielding hypersonic capabilities that the U.S. does not have, there is a focus on modernizing warfighting systems to make better use of the technology. I spoke with Aaron Kosurek, Senior Director and Hypersonics Campaign Lead at Raytheon Missiles and Defense about efforts to build up U.S. hypersonic capabilities. Aaron, thank you so much for being here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Well, thanks, Beverly. It's, you know, really, really great to be here, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, before we jump into our conversation about hypersonics, let's talk about your career. You've worked for several defense companies. How did you get started in this industry? Well, that's a great question. And it's one I really like to answer. You know, I was raised in a family of academics, though my dad did serve in the U.S. Army during the Vietnam era. Growing up, I was always curious and I was always ready for the next challenge, be it academic, physical or experiential. I always like to share what I experienced and spread knowledge to others, particularly those that didn't have the same opportunities I did. And, you know, I think team sports played a big role in my formative years. And that's where I think I first started my leadership journey, really. I learned the importance of courage, resilience, and hard work. My interest in the military and passion for supporting the warfighter came as I entered the workforce. I learned, you know, what these men and women and their families do for our country every day. And I wanted to be part of that. I wanted to contribute. I wanted to make sure... I put my strengths to the fight and do everything I could to help these warfighters succeed and keep our nation safe. And I've never looked back. You know, I also think it's an important part of my story that, you know, I married an Air Force officer. He was in the middle of serving what would be a 27-year military career and one where many times he and his crew flew into harm's way to keep our nation safe. And, you know, I draw so much inspiration from that. He's taught me so much, as have all the colleagues I'm surrounded by at Raytheon Technologies. Uh, You know, they're so incredibly dedicated to this mission. Another, you know, piece of, of my story is the volunteer work I do. I volunteer in organizations that support militaries and their families and spend quite a bit of time with organizations designed to inspire youth, junior achievement and STEM organizations in particular. And Perhaps one of the, you know, organizations I enjoy most is the Air Force Academy Sponsorship Program. Sponsoring those cadets is just such an honor, and I draw just as much inspiration from that. Those bright young leaders, you know, I probably learn just as much from them as as I may, you know, offer them. So, it you know, it's just been a tremendous journey thus far, and through all of those connections, my interest and passion in this area just continue to grow. 
I remain curious every day and I face, you know, each day with the mindset of what will we do today to help make a difference, you know, today and in the future. And the last few years, I've been focused in the hypersonic mission area. Well, let's talk about hypersonics and how you got interested in that area. You are Raytheon's hypersonics campaign lead, meaning you lead a team that's working to accelerate development and fielding of the end-to-end hypersonic capabilities for both offensive and defensive missions. So I want us to kind of break that down. One, how did you get interested in this? Let me let you answer that first. Sure. So, you know, I think I spend a a lot of time with engineers. You know, I I don't have a technical degree by trade. And over the course of my, you know, 20 year career, I just have been, you know, so curious and want to understand the technology. And as part of, you know, my leadership journey, that competence is, is very important. And, you know, just spending time with them to understand how bullets hit bullets you know, it's just fascinating to me. And I want to be that voice of those engineers that, you know, may not be able to, to communicate broadly or widely. And some of them certainly can. I want to be that advocate for them, as well as that liaison with our customer to connect people and technology. And, you know, I just, I'm so passionate about it and making sure that the technology we develop gets out of the labs, gets operationalized. And, you know, that's just what's led me to this position. It's just years of of understanding integrated air and missile defense of of all, you know, domains. And the hypersonics is where I'm, I'm sitting right now and where I'm focused. Now, for the listeners who may not know, can you tell us exactly what hypersonics is and why it's important? So hypersonics is, you know, it's really an attribute. Hypersonic weapons are typically classified by their ability to achieve speeds greater than Mach 5, and they remain relatively low within the atmosphere. And can you walk us through why that ability is important? Sure. Great question. So we face an immediate and evolving threat from adversaries who are actively developing and testing hypersonic missile systems. You know, and these missile systems, they really alter the warfighting on a strategic and tactical level. These new weapons that we're seeing being deployed deliver payloads farther and faster than ever before. They move nimbly enough to avoid detection and dodge defensive countermeasures. The unique attribute of hypersonics is is not just their sheer speed, but the fact that they can maneuver you know, the fact that they can maneuver presents challenges to our defenses. They're hard to detect and track. Hard to detect and track. And can you talk a bit more about the differences between the offensive capabilities and the defensive capabilities of hypersonic weapons? So offensive capabilities are being developed to deter our adversaries and if needed to conduct preemptive strike to destroy a dangerous threat or a target. There's two types of kinetic weapons being developed for the offensive mission area. One uses air breathing propulsion or scramjet technology, and the other uses boost glide technology. And that's where a rocket motor launches the missile into the atmosphere before a glide vehicle separates and then goes on to fly at hypersonic speeds to intercept the threat. Uh Uh-huh. And the defensive capabilities? Defensive capabilities are, you know, we're developing those to, of course, deter also, and if necessary, defeat hypersonic threats. In that mission area, we're investing in both kinetic and non-kinetic capabilities. 
And it's important to note that we're leveraging the lessons learned that we've gained from our efforts in developing offensive capabilities to inform that the design of our defensive systems. You know, there's a lot of, of commonalities, of course, with the speed and, and, you know, the time to the target, but they are two distinct mission areas. And, you know, first and foremost, they both present a strong deterrence posture. Now, hypersonic technology, as you mentioned, has been around since the start of the Cold War. Why is it getting so much attention right now? Is it because our adversaries are developing the capabilities, in some cases, capabilities that we, the U.S., don't have? Yeah, you know, you're correct. We've spent decades maturing this technology. You know, NASA certainly is trailblazer in hypersonics. And, you know, we've chosen not to fund testing and development of hypersonic weapons until recently. But now, you know, our adversaries are testing these weapons and and this presents a, a threat because they have these unique capabilities that, you know, I mentioned earlier, they maneuver, they're difficult to detect and track. So yeah, you know, the budget is very indicative of of that threat and the investments we need to make to operationalize the technology that we've been developing over the last several decades. You mentioned the FY22 budget and it includes 3.8 billion for hypersonics. That's an incredibly large investment. Talk a little bit more about the need for this type of large investment. So, you know, as I mentioned, we have spent decades developing the technology and now's the time to pull it out of the labs and and stop studying it and, and take it to fielding a capability. And this is in direct response to the threat. You know, so we, we see that our adversaries are developing and testing these weapons and the budget is indicative of, you know, how we're going to test and then operationalize and field these weapons and manufacture them at scale so that we have a strong deterrence posture and are able to defend the nation against these maneuvering high-speed threats. How do we fall behind our adversaries in developing? Were we just not paying attention or was it just there are other priorities that were higher on the list? Yeah, right. I think the the latter, you know, I would tell you that the hypersonic threat is one of many capabilities our adversaries possess. The ballistic threat hasn't gone away. You know, we still have to defend against that threat and, you know, multi-domain threats. Our nation's committed to maintaining a strong multi-domain defense capability and a strong offensive deterrence posture. And fielding hypersonic capability is a priority. And what are some of the key programs that could be funded in the budget with $3.8 billion? There's a lot of oars in the water right now. The major programs on the air breather side that are, you know, propelled by scramjet engines or the hypersonic air breathing cruise missile or HACM, you know, the conventional prompt strike, the, the Navy's developing there, uh, which is a boost glide system, long range hypersonic weapon, air launched rapid response weapon and tactical boost glide. Those those are I think the the main programs that you see in the budget, and we're looking to see more timely, more rapid, multiple tests to to fly these weapons. The key is just getting those prototypes out and demonstrating that we can fly consistently, and then we'll see them turn into programs of record and go into, you know, manufacturing these weapons at scale. So to pull the thread on that a little bit more, how will defense companies such as Raytheon and all of the others collaborate with the Pentagon in order to move from the laboratory to having something that is usable? 
we maintain a, a strong partnership with the Pentagon, and we're committed to being part of that national leadership team for this mission area. There are working groups, there are forums where we participate with our military leadership to make sure we are listening to our customers' priorities and helping them think through the requirements that will enable timely mission success. You know, one example of how we do this is through modeling and simulation and prototype and testing. We test a little, we learn a lot, and we are working in lockstep with our partners in government and in industry to achieve mission success and develop these weapons in the next four to five years. Is there collaboration between defense companies on developing these capabilities? Yes, absolutely. I think, you know, at times we compete and at times we partner. I think one strong example of where we we collaborate across industry is in the modeling and simulation domain. You know, it's important that we share test data. It's important that we have a clear picture of, of the threat so that we're able to build systems that can defend against that threat. You know, each company has unique programs that they and systems that they employ and sharing, uh, you know, test data uh, helps generate high fidelity models that help our customers inform their requirements to build the systems that will defend against the threat. So yes, big yes between the collaboration across industry and with the government. You frequently speak about digital engineering and digital design elements, as you, as you just mentioned, including modeling and simulation. How important is it to be able to perfect things through modeling and simulation before you actually test it out? Sure. So digital engineering environments and the ability to actually develop a, a digital twin of a, a system, for example, really reduces the, the cycle time of what you know in the past has been done on paper with numerous revisions. The digital engineering environment uh, can leverage artificial intelligence, machine learning, takes in threat data of flight so that we're able to see in a digital environment what the battle space looks like. That really enables us to think through the, the mission engineering of the entire system, you know, from sensor to the battle management, to engaging the, the target to defeat it, you know, and that environment, leveraging those tools, you know, just really reduces the, the cycle time and, you know, depicts a, a very realistic simulation environment that helps our decision makers make informed decisions to meet the warfighters' requirements. And I didn't ask you this question about collaboration, but what about collaboration between the U.S. and its allies on everything that you've just talked about from the digital engineering to working uh, the cooperation amongst defense companies. Very important. It's right there in our national defense strategy that, you know, strategy calls for allied cooperation. It's it's imperative to address this threat. You know, I, I always say no one company or no one company can, can do it alone. I think we, we see evidence of this this cooperation with the recent Air Force award of the SciFire program, which is an allied prototype initiative with Australia on our, our first contract working towards a hypersonic air breathing missile concept. So definitely a priority for this administration and looking forward to expanding that even further in the future. Let's shift gears a bit and talk about the hypersonic workforce. And we've touched on this briefly. 
How is the workforce and the industry as a whole evolving to meet the increasing need for hypersonic capabilities? There is no question we have a shortage of hypersonic engineering talent in this country. Raytheon Technologies is collaborating with the Department of Defense's Joint Hypersonics Transition Office, and we're a partner to to Texas A&M as an academic consortium manager. So working with, you know, the government, academia, labs that are committed to this mission area is is key to that workforce development and addressing the, the challenge of the hypersonic workforce. We're, you know, helping academic institutions develop curriculum and degree programs around this. We're also working with them to, to innovate. I mean, some of the, the brightest talent we have is not yet even in the workforce, and we want to leverage that talent and inspire them to continue on a path of working in hypersonic disciplines. I was going to say, am I hearing you say that that you need more students studying hypersonic engineering or other STEM-related fields in order for there to be enough workers to produce the capabilities that, that the U.S. needs right now? Yep, exactly. I know that Raytheon has some academic partnerships. You mentioned Texas A&M. What other types of skills are needed for someone who may be listening to this podcast who's like, oh, I might be interested in working on this? What types of skills do they need? We need a lot of different disciplines. It, you know, I would, I would tell you that the STEM degrees are, are probably the priority. You know, we need expertise in areas that could range from high-speed flight engineering and mathematics to material science. You know, the, the materials needed to resist these high temperatures is very important. So the material science chemistry is an aspect, the physics-based uh, engineering And I'd also emphasize it's important that we continue to invest in training to ensure our workforce is at the cutting edge of R&D and innovation as we continue down this journey of, of addressing the hypersonic threat. And to circle back to something you said at the very beginning, you you mentioned that originally your educational background is actually not in a STEM area, but yet you work in this field and you've been incredibly successful. So is there space for people who maybe don't have a STEM background, but could learn it and get into the field? Absolutely. I mean, you know, just working day in and day out with the engineers that are working on these hard problems, you learn so much through experiential learning. And, you know, I mentioned earlier, I, br- I try to bring my strengths to, to the fight every day. And, you know, it takes a lot of time and commitment to, to learn the technology and to be able to communicate and advocate, you know, but there's, there's a lot of functional areas that contribute to, to our success in moving this forward. A lot of disciplines, you know, it takes great communicators. It takes, you know, people that have a passion for this and are willing to learn and understand what it takes to to get folks to the table to solve hard problems. So, you know, critical thinking skills, strategic mindsets, the ability to to execute on challenging problems and objectives is, is, they're all great skills that can be brought to, to the table. So I encourage a variety of backgrounds to come. It takes diversity to solve these hard problems. And as we wrap up here, a couple of questions. How have you found your voice as a woman in this field, which can be male-dominated? Wouldn't be smart women, smart power without a question like that. And how do you encourage young women to get into this field? I found my voice through courage, through listening and engaging 
I think I've had great role models from where I draw inspiration. You know, I'm inspired every day by the men and women uh, serving our country and my colleagues that are developing these capabilities. I remind myself of, you know, find that spark and, and you know, find a role model and build the courage, you know, because these men and women serve in our country. I just remind myself of, of the courage they must all possess. And, you know, their dedication and brave work has really played a big role in the voice I have today. Erin Kosarek, thank you very much for being here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Beverly. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon.